Well, I guess I, I will begin. So it's my great pleasure to introduce today's cutting edge lecture on industrial policy challenges in the developing world and to interview our two wonderful and distinguished speakers. We're all aware of how industrial policy has become a kind of more normalized within discussions of global development. But this revival is happening in a changed world. So a world in which financialization has come to characterize globalization, a world in which production has been unbundled and it's changed the nature of trade flows, a world in which high income countries are shifting governance out of multilateral forums into regional and bilateral forums, and also a world in which we're much more aware of the kind of carbon based nature of the global economy. But we also have a number of sort of old perennial challenges, that namely that of kind of commodity price volatility and these long-term business cycles of credit expansion and debt, which we, we focused upon in last week's cutting edge uh, lecture. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very challenging time to think about industrial policies, both in terms of what developing countries can do, but also in terms of how the global economy needs to be reformed to make those developmental aspirations more likely to succeed. So we could not have two better guests to help us confront these challenges. Uh, first of all, we have Dr. Akubi Okubi. Uh, who is the former senior minister and special advisor to the Prime Minister of Ethiopia. He's currently a British Academy Global Professor at SOAS University, where he's working on a new project on greening African development. His work has been a big source of inspiration for me personally and for many other scholars. Our students will be reading his book uh, this term, Made in Africa. And I really love this book because it both has a lot of very empirically rich case studies of industrial policy in Ethiopia in different sectors, but it's also an example of how you can do very kind of theoretically engaging work and still make it very relevant and helpful for policymakers at the same time. So then we have uh, Dr. Richard Kozel-Wright, who is the director of UNCTAD's Globalization and Development Strategies Division. Uh, he's been a very inspiring uh, scholar for many uh, people within development studies as well, and has been actively involved in multilateral, multilateral discussions about development. He's written many books, including Transnational Corporations and the Global Economy, a book with a very nice title, The Resistible Rise of Market Fundamentalism, as well as a more recent book, The Case for a New Bretton Woods, which takes a multilateral view of these issues. I've also noted that both of our speakers have co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Industrial Policy. And so, I, you know, I was trying to tell my students this week just how lucky we are to have both of you join us this week. So I'm going to ask both of you to speak for about 30 minutes. And I've been told to be a little bit strict, so I will give you a reminder uh, when you have five minutes left. And then we're going to open for questions uh, from the students and from other members of the LSE. Um, so just to start us off, I, I will share the slides. I have to remember how to do this again. <laughs> so here we go. And I hand over to you, Akabi. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Laura. Do you hear me? Yes, we hear you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm first honored to, uh, to present to uh, distinguished students uh, at LSE, one of my uh, favorite universities and schools. 
uh, and I have been frequently visiting the library when I was doing my PhD at SOAS. Uh, so thank you, uh, Professor Laura Mann and uh, Professor James uh, uh, Puzzle for the invitation. I am also glad that I'm presenting with my colleague and good friend, Richard, uh, whom uh, we have been working on a similar research area. And it will be, I think, appropriate to mention that UNCTAD has been one of the rare institutions, international organizations, that has been trying to uh, accommodate heterodox views, alternative views on issues linked with developing world and uh, on industrialization, on trade, on structural transformation. And, and uh, I would like to express my uh, appreciation for Richard for his distinguished work for over 30 years at, at UNCTAD. So coming back to my uh, uh, presentation, I would like to focus on three areas. First, to provide uh, some background on perspectives linked with uh, industrial policy. Uh, secondly, I'll try to highlight few of the building blocks of industrial policy. And the third area, uh, and quite important, will be the challenges as well as the prospectus of, uh, of the uh, the current situation. So the very reason that I want to touch on the background uh, uh, linked with perspectives is for two reasons. First, so that you understand that the industrial policy uh, literature is so rich and has a very long existence. Uh, and it's important to understand the background, the context, and the, and the perspectives. I would encourage you to look at the Oxford Handbook of Industrial Policy, which we co-edited. But having this background is also, I want you to, to be motivated to do some research on industrial policy. So I want to, to give you some, some flavor of this. So uh, Laura will be continuing uh, helping us with the slides. Uh, thank you, Laura. Yeah, these are two uh, of the pioneers on industrial policy. I'm not referring earlier economists like Adam Smith uh, or uh, some other of, uh, writers and thinkers who partly contributed, but I'm primarily uh, referring where a very comprehensive presentation of industrial policy is available. So here we see two uh, persons, Alexander Hamilton, and uh, Frederick List. They were during the same period, and Frederick List's uh, significant work is the National System of Political Economy, which is for volume, and it's quite, quite important, even with the current situation. Alexander Hamilton is the first treasury of the United States, and of course, he, he uh, died uh, while he was young, in his 30s, but he has been uh, the one of the most significant contributors, not only on industrial policy, but also on other issues linked like in the banking, central bank, etc. So these are quite important and you will find the uh, box quite useful. Next. Yeah, so you could see from here uh, a brief uh, thought 
industry consists the true wealth and prosperity of a state. Hamilton was a strong believer that the U.S. should invest, should focus on manufacturing. And Frederick List tried to justify the importance of productive power, which is industrial capacity, and that uh, the government needs to also to develop this uh, sector. So you will find this quite interesting. Next. Yeah, Joseph Chamter is uh, uh, one of the economists in the 40s, 50s, and his key contribution has been to show us how technology in the long term can drive economic transformation and, and social transformation. And, and one of his key contribution, uh, contribution has been the concept of uh, creative destruction, which is quite useful in the current context. The New Deal is one of the key demonstrations how an industrial policy can really transform an economy. So we know in the 30s, after the uh, depression in the 30s, that uh, recovery of the economy was quite important and boosting demand was, uh, was a key element that uh, uh, the Roosevelt government focused. And, and here uh, we need to link it with Keynes, uh, British economist who has really been uh, uh, pushing the idea of the importance of aggregate demand. And I want to highlight that uh, the World War II, this is quite, quite important to demonstrate how industrial policy can really make significant breakthrough. During World War II, the major uh, active industrial policy was pursued by the US and here, which we could be considered as a miracle is that within a few years, the US was able to boost its manufacturing and industrial capacity. Without that, it was not possible to defeat uh, Nazism and fascism. And here, uh, during this period, for instance, the manufacturing of aircraft became like just manufacturing uh, cars and vehicles. So in 1939, the US was manufacturing 3,000 aircrafts. By 1944, uh, its production capacity reached 100,000, 100 times uh, uh, manufacturing. And this was pursued uh, with, with the concepts of industrial policy. And also inventions were made during this period. Penciling, radar, jet engine, computing. Earlier uh, ideas of computing were, uh, 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 were established during World War II. Then after World War II, the space mission and then Boeing became a global leader in manufacturing of uh, aircraft, then in aerospace, space mission, NASA. So in the 40s and 50s, the proactive uh, industrial policy of the US is quite live and, and uh, it's a key demonstration that industrial policy has always been the main focus of advanced economies. And, and it's not just about China or about South Korea when we talk about industrial policy. Next. Yeah, uh, Nicholas Caldor has written quite important uh, books on the importance of the manufacturing, special uh, properties of uh, manufacturing. Albert Harshman uh, from one of the leading development economies has made significant contribution especially on how to design strategy of economic development. I will not go in detail to concepts of Hirschman, but I would encourage you to, to look at this book. It's quite, quite 
uh, important even with the, uh, in terms of understanding developing countries uh, and industrial policy. Next. Yeah, then we come to, uh, uh, Laura mentioned earlier on, on research based on empirical evidence and, and observations. And these are uh, examples of uh, uh, Chalmers Johnson uh, and then Robert Wade, which is at LSE, who is at LSE. And then uh, Alice Armstrong. All this conducted years of research on East Asia and tried to present us how industrial policy has been designed, the weaknesses, how it evolved. And this also shows that uh, ideas and thinking are uh, extracted from real practice, from observation, from evidence, from, I mean, inductive research is so important. And then I want to encourage you especially to, to read this, uh, this uh, materials. Uh, yeah, so this is a background. I want to show you that the industrial policy literature is quite rich with long tradition and it's a very coherent and a, com and, and a very comprehensive uh, conception. The second area I would like to highlight before coming to the current challenges is on the issue of uh, what are the building blocks of industrial policy? What are the key concepts? Uh, Laura was mentioning her, she has her lecture this week has focused on structural transformation. And for me, the key definition concept of industrial policy is a government intervention to accelerate structural transformation and economic culture. It's not about government intervention per se, even in communist uh, systems, government intervene. But the key point is the government intervention is of a quality that focuses to push a structural transformation that uh, meaning moving from low productivity, low value, low technology to a higher level in a long process. And when we talk about economic catch up, we mean the lag uh, in contrast to the ones at the uh, front, at the frontier. So this is a key concept and, and industrial policies merit should be measured whether it is promoting structural transformation and economic catch up. Second key concept, Again, manufacturing is uh, an engine of growth. And this is uh, an important point, which is also valid uh, as we see the industrial policy being adopted in the US. Technological catch up is increasingly becoming quite important and it's at the center of structural transformation. Again, I want to highlight exports as a key driver of international learning and also pushing and relaxing the uh, balance of payment constraints. These are important because we know that influential um, uh, scholars try to advise that developing countries should not focus on export-led industrialization or they shouldn't uh, focus on manufacturing. So these are quite important uh, uh, building blocks uh, from my point of view. In terms of late development and, and latecomer development, the key concept is uh, let commerce have to focus and pursue industrial policy, not because they have enough resources, but because they have inadequate resources, they have dispersed resources, they have resources that need to be, uh, to be uh, promoted and developed. And the key aspect here is that uh, looking at the 
the ideas that will help us to push economic activities, which are dynamic, is still going to be important. And here I want to highlight the role of linkage effects, the principle of reciprocity, which is quite useful now, and also protection of new industries. And for sure, when we think of the role of the government and market, we have to see these are complementary mechanisms and it changes from sector to sector and also from time to time. What are the challenges uh, of industrial policy? I believe uh, Richard will also expand these uh, issues. The first one is there is a shift in the global economy. From my perspective, the key shifts are growth is becoming sluggish globally. Uh, the uh, global crisis is becoming the uh, uh, is uh, evident in, in the process, not only single crisis, but multiple uh, crises and volatility and in combination with interconnectedness are a key uh, uh, features of the uh, current uh, global economy. So these are sources for uh, its uh, uh, being fragile, uh, but also forces that can bring uh, global economy to a much accelerated growth. Second aspect is technological advances are accelerating, and this has significant uh, importance compared with 40 years back or 30 years back when, uh, let's say, uh, Korea or Taiwan or Singapore were uh, were uh, uh, were developing. So technological advance uh, becomes a critical component in viewing the premature industrialization. What needs is not just going to invest. R&D or on technology, but also the pace of these innovations is going to be quite important. And this uh, is linked with the middle income trap, uh, which uh, Richard may be adding. The third point from a positive perspective, the rise of Asia is a key, a key element in the current global economy. Over 50% of uh, growth uh, for the last few years, is it's, it's being driven uh, by 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 Asia. 30, like, let's say 19 in 2022 and uh, 2023, China has uh, contributed uh, for about 35 percent of global growth, and and India about 15 percent. And combined with other Asian countries, Asia is becoming the driver of global economy. This has significant importance for developing countries. Uh, like uh, African countries or Latin America countries. We need to understand the importance of Asia as, as a driver of world economy and, and uh, need to diversify economic uh, collaboration as well. And the fourth point is the multilateralism is being weakened more than any other time and the governance system uh, is not in favor of developing countries. Next. So these are significant implications for uh, developing countries. First, uh, we could see uh, the main reasons that uh, some of the advanced economies are now uh, coming up with uh, industrial policies. First, we have to note that they have always been practicing, but with the, uh, it has not always been a uniform level of intervention. 90s and 80s, because of the high uh, wave of uh, uh, neoliberal uh, uh, and economic liberalization, the agenda on industrial policy has been put uh, 
on the background, although the practice was not stopped. So here uh, the neoliberal uh, waves uh, have been found by many countries, governments that is not going to help in recovery and stimulate economy. So in the 2009 uh, global financial uh, crisis, we have seen austerity as a major policy strategy followed, but this time almost all uh, advanced economies, their governments have been uh, focusing on, uh, uh, on uh, economic recovery and putting resources for to stimulate the economy. Then a second element uh, that also has uh, pushed uh, advanced economies to embrace industrial policy in a very aggressive manner is the rise of China and uh, not China's rise in the other economic sectors, but primarily in the technological leadership. That is a key element. And in addition to this, during the COVID crisis and the geopolitical tensions in Ukraine, in the Gulf, uh, more uh, governments are recognizing that uh, the value chain is not resilient and it is inefficient. This has also brought the interest of industrial policy to the forefront. So this has significant implication because the resource being allocated by like the US, for instance, for the, its uh, uh, US Inflation Reduction Act of Biden and the Bipartisan Chips Act or Infrastructure Act is almost close to 2 trillion. This is, has never been, this scale has never been witnessed in the last uh, many decades. So the scale, the massive scale has significant implication worldwide. Uh, then the protectionism is also quite, quite aggressive. Uh, and it's not the ordinary practices of uh, protectionism, but even uh, going to the extreme, uh, bringing the issue of decoupling and risking. Then in Europe also, similar efforts are being given, uh, being uh, applied, but we also see significant fragmentation and that uh, uh, at national level and European Union is not harmonized and, and uh, Europe is losing its uh, leadership. So in broad terms, what uh, we see is uh, uh, a rush uh, or let's say the gold rush of industrial policy and applying industrial policy in the most aggressive way. And this has significant implication for uh, developing countries to give more focus to industrial uh, policy and also to boost their uh, national economies. So on the industrial policy challenges, uh, I would like to highlight these few points, but I have tried to put in a different category uh, on the next slide is the uh, issue of climate change and environmental sustainability. I didn't want to put it as just one crisis like COVID-19 because the era uh, we are entering the century is believed arguably uh, the great transformation of the coming century. It's, it's going to shape the direction of economies. It's not also about you know, containing a crisis. In this, uh, the climate change is now also the key driver to invest, uh, to finance green technologies, green industries, and we are witnessing the fastest shift here in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's important to recognize this because 
it could give uh, to two major dimensions of this great transformation to use Polanyi's uh, concept. One is it is a transition from fossil fuel uh, economy to a green economy or carbon neutral economy, uh, which is going to take decades and a, a new paradigm. But the second one is emerging economies are taking the leadership of this green transformation. It's not Europe or the US which is taking its leadership. Let's try to look at some data. China was not producing a single solar panel in 2000. It was not producing a single electric vehicle in year 2000. It was mainly after year 2000, China has been shifting to this process. So when we see China as an example, now China is uh, accounts 80% of exports of solar cell, uh, solar panels, 80%. And the cost of uh, solar has gone, has uh, diminished, has decreased by 90% in the last 10 years, thanks to the economy of scale and, and, and uh, 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 in China. In terms of lithium, over 50, 60%. In terms of EVs, 30% of global export are now accounted uh, produced by, by China. This trend is going to continue. We see similar trend in India and, and Brazil as well. So the green uh, greening of economic development of the next, of the 21st century, a key aspect is going to be emerging economies will be uh, the leaders in, in green transformation. That we know the politics of fossil fuel economy. And one good example is Electric vehicles were not uh, uh, innovated or invented by Tesla or in the last uh, 20 years. Actually, electric vehicles were invented before 110 years. And in the US, they were bigger in numbers than, uh, than uh, uh, vehicles powered by uh, petrol. And that production was stopped because of the fossil fuel interest. Uh, in the beginning of 20th century. So there is a lot of politics going into the first, uh, in, in relation to maintaining uh, the status quo and, and the biggest challenge in transforming uh, the uh, leapfrogging into uh, a clean and uh, uh, carbon neutral economy is primarily uh, the politics and political economy. Even now, uh, Last year, for instance, 2023, 20, uh, uh, close to one trillion subsidy was given to fossil fuel uh, uh, industry. Then we need to recognize the danger of especially the green divide. This is quite evident comparing that Africa is being left and only 2% of the investment in green technology or green industry is being invested in, in, uh, in Africa. And the ultimate message is emerging economies, developing economies have a big advantage if they embrace carbon neutral uh, paths and, and it's not unnecessary pressure, but an important uh, strategy for developing countries to build uh, the next uh, uh, new industries. My final slide is uh, on Africa, I want to highlight this because of, there is a lot of pessimism on what is happening in Ethiopia. The quote here is, uh, 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 was published in, in Financial Times. The world's economy biggest problem is Africa. 
Uh, and we hear from scholars from mainstream media the message about that. But I would only mention that uh, such pessimism is not going to show us the direction of the continent in the future because we have seen in history Asia being considered as uh, the uh, darkest continent, same thing the US during the time of uh, Frederick List. So a key issue is that in Africa, we see some uh, growth and economic transformation in some economies. And we also see uh, that uh, many economies are not uh, are doing quite well in terms of uh, economic transformation. When I say economic transformation, I'm not measuring the 4.5 or 5% average, which is even above global average. If Africa needs to transform, it should be able to grow at 7% or 8% annually for a period of 30 years, uh, a longer episode, if we try to look at Asian experience. And also a concerted effort has to be followed to ensure uh, that the policy interventions focus on economic transformation, meaning economic diversification, export diversification, and uh, building productive capacity. So this is one, one element we need to recognize, the lag in terms of economic transformation. The second important uh, element driver we need to see is demography. Demography in economic history is a key driver like technology. Uh, so this is going to have significant implication in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, the pressure to create jobs, in terms of uh, developing productive capacity and market growth. And here, the main problem with many African governments uh, is that uh, the policies are not focused single-mindedly on productive transformation. Uh, and, and this is an area where we need, uh, we need to work. Uh, and here, we have to look at on how African governments will be building a productive state uh, on how they can accelerate uh, learning and, and also exercise uh, uh, policy uh, independence. So here I want to highlight uh, that uh, uh, the green transformation and productive transformation is going to be uh, the only way, the only pathway as a response to the current uh, challenges. Here I have tried to mention the current research we are conducting on uh, greening of African economic development and also uh, we have now uh, finalized the, uh, uh, a work on uh, the Oxford Handbook on the Greening of Economic Development, which uh, hopefully will be released by the end of uh, uh, 2024, which will also bring in these uh, new challenges in with uh, a lot of uh, empirical evidence uh, uh, contributed by many leading uh, scholars, including uh, Richard. So I think I should stop here, Laura. And uh, if I take to my time, my apology. No, you were you were perfectly on time. A couple minutes early, in fact. So thank you very much. Um, Richard, do, would you like to share your slides? Great. So take it away. 
Okay, thanks. Thank you very much, Lara. Thank you to you and James for the invitation. Um, let me try and follow on as best I can from Akevi. I hope what I have to say will complement what he, he's just presented and and maybe add a, add a few more uh, things into the into the story as well. Um, I'm not going to give you I, I'm not going to give you all a potted history of Unctad. Uh, maybe Laura's done that in one of her lectures. I hope so. We use we we have a unique place in the global governance ecosystem um, that is worth that is worth some reflection. And I'm not going to I'm not going to do that. Uh, but the basic point for this lecture, of course, is that uh, when UNCTAD was created in 64, so we're 60 years old this year, so, uh, celebrating our 60th anniversary, most developing countries, of course, were commodity uh, exporting economies, and they struggled um, and had been struggling for some time to sustain the kinds of growth rate that was necessary to deliver on the expectations, particularly of newly politically independent economies and to close the economic, social and technological gaps with the advanced economies. And, and essentially for UNCTAD, the problem rested with the asymmetric nature of the interdependent world, which favored uh, manufacturing exporters over commodity exporters, the old terms of trade debate. And of course, the way to essentially deal with, with that problem was to for developing countries to begin uh, the process of sustained industrialization. And the UNCTAD, so UNCTAD has been in this challenge around industrial development and the policies necessary to affect that for quite some time. It's really been very much at the center of our vision of development strategy and the constraints that must be overcome to affect that uh, vision. Of course, there was, an, there was a kind of crude empirical uh, support to that, uh, to our argument, which rested in the simple fact that rich most rich countries uh, had advanced from themselves from relatively poor rural uh, economies to advanced technologically sophisticated, uh, sophisticated economies through building up their industrial capacities. Um, and that gets you into the debate of how you think about that big process of structural transformation that Arkebi has uh, himself talked about and indicated some of the big personalities that have contributed to that discussion. I mean, very simply, I think, I mean, there was always a recognition from a fairly early date that markets, prices and property, property rights, um, whilst they're good in terms of managing incremental gains from existing resource endowments, they were not so good at mobilizing more resources on a significant transformative scale and using those resources uh, to move into new and more productive and more dynamic areas of economic activity. And so in that, from that perspective, the focus is not so much on markets, prices and property in terms of thinking about the policy challenge, but focus on production, on the role of profits, uh, and the question of power and power in the double sense, both the energy question, which has always been central to this challenge, and the question of who benefits, who is, but what are the interests uh, behind uh, the, the, the question of a, a, an effective transition and, and transformation uh, process. 
when the and that's for developing countries, of course, gets you into the old question of the north versus the south in terms of the global uh, context. But of course, as well, that should be discussed often not very effectively, it has to be said, the class dimension of uh, structural transformation needs to be brought into this uh, story as well. Akebi's mentioned some of the prominent names that have contributed to this kind of uh, perspective on uh, uh, structural transformation. The only one I would throw in there that gets very little coverage in a lot of um, history of thought accounts of industrial transformation, and that's Colbert, the advisor, the, the economic advisor to Louis XIV, um, who actually had, before Hamilton, before List, struggled with these problems as France was trying to catch up with the Dutch and the British in the uh, second half of the 17th century. And, and there's an interesting discussion of, of that in a recently published book I would recommend people look at by a guy called Jacob Sol, which is called The Free Market, A History of an Idea, which looks at the contribution of Colbert to the discussion of um, industrial development and industrial policy thinking uh, at that time. And, and, and I would just throw his name into that illustrious pot of individuals that Akebi uh, discussed. When it comes, to, and, and I think the bottom line, when you take a production profits and power perspective on the industrial policy challenge. Um, policy, it's, it's all about policy. You can't affect the kind of transformation that Akebi discussed without taking the policy challenge very, very serious, seriously. And when it comes to policy, I don't think the debates really are about means, uh, the, the, the instruments of policy. Those are very familiar in terms of uh, the discussions around industrial policy, tariffs, the use of tariffs, the use of taxes, subsidies, uh, credit, discre discretion, discretionary credit um, allocations, uh, government procurement, research and development, state ownership. These are these are the instruments that will always figure in a discussion of industrial policy. What industrial policy, I think, is all about is the ends. What what what? Why are we? Why do we need to uh, in, use industrial policy um, in in this? structural transformation challenge. And there is that's where a lot of the debate, I think, that you probably um, familiarize yourselves with already kind of focuses. Uh, there's a big and rather uh, uh, inappropriate debate, I think, at least for us, about picking winners and whether governments can pick winners and whether they should stay out of the process of structural transformation or not. It's a false debate. The state is always involved in this discussion. Um, you know, other people fo focus on boosting competitiveness uh, as a way of framing the, the, the goals of industrial policy. Others talk about correcting market failures. Others, Mariana Mazzucato's important work about specific missions that industrial policy needs to focus on. And, and those have, at least some of those, I think, have a useful contribution to make. My own focus really is, is on, uh, and I think Akebi has as, as indicated this already, I think industrial policy ultimately is all about raising productivity growth as the key uh, to uh, affecting the kind of uh, structural transformation that, that we're talking about. And at least the way we think about industrial policy in our work is how can we, how can developing countries find the, the, the means and the strategies to ensure that uh, you have a sustained 
and, and, and ideally rapid growth of, of productivity. And, and in that context, and I think it's an important debate that you may well all have begun to think about, is, is, the, is the one around whether manufacturing activity is somehow unique and, and in a sense better than focusing on uh, agriculture or on the service economy. And I'll come to the back a little bit to this debate uh, later because it's resurfaced again in some important quarters. I guess for the work that we do in UNCTAD and that we've done for 60 years, manufacturing is not unique, but it is special. And it's special because when you take a productivity perspective on the structural transformation problem uh, uh, and challenge, then manufacturing seems to be an, uh, 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 an area where the, lev the levers that drive productivity growth are heavily concentrated. Then it's again, it's you find these in other sectors of the economy, but they are particularly concentrated in in terms of manufacturing activity. And this takes you through the history of thought that that Arkebi, I think, uh, uh, discussed earlier. Um, manufacturing is is particularly suited to a compl complex division of labor that embodies both specialization and diversification tendencies that goes takes you back to the work of people like Adam Smith, of course. Um, it, it is, it is um, particularly uh, susceptible or beneficial benefits from scale economies, uh, both internal scale economies and external uh, scale economies are particularly pre present in manufacturing activities. The questions around innovation and learning that Arkebi talked about, again, very prevalent in, in, in the manufacturing sector. Uh, Complementary investments uh, in infrastructure and, and other areas um, are, 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 again, uh, often very prevalent in manufacturing uh, processes. And, and the old and very important concept that, that, that was introduced by Albert Hirschman in particular around the building of linkages um, uh, of, a, of a both backward and forward linkages, but also other linkages that I think is particularly uh, distinct in, in when it comes to manufacturing activities. So there's a, just a set of reasons that, that make you want to focus on manufacturing as a particularly important driver of uh, productivity growth. And, and, and when you do that properly, the notion of being able to establish a virtuous growth circle with productivity at the center, I think, is the kind of uh, the 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 kind of goal, the golden the, the kind of golden goal of of um, uh, much thinking about industrial policy, um, and and certainly the success stories that we talk about in East Asia, but also in sectoral examples uh, that people like Mazzucato discuss in great detail, that notion of a virtuous circle uh, driven by uh, product, strong productivity growth, I think is at the center of, of those discussions. There is a, there's an important um, addition that you need to think about, I think in that notion of a virtuous circle. And that's the, the central role of job creation. Um, uh, 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 as part of the structural transformation process. And, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, in the early stages of development as, country, as countries uh, move out of agriculture and primary uh, 
activities um, into uh, more productive activities, um, the question of job creation is, is very important. That's central to the kind of classic development models such as the Lewis, the, the Lewis model. Um, and I think um, it's also the true that um, in many developing countries today, the problem of informality and the extent to which uh, economies depend upon informal uh, uh, labor uh, markets and job prospects um, is a particularly acute problem that makes job creation and, and decent job creation a persistent challenge that can't really be divorced from the wider challenges around structural transformation and the role of industrial policy. I think when you get to higher levels of uh, development, that becomes less significant as a problem. But for many developing countries, including, as Arkevi noted, uh, middle-income countries, that, that challenge around job creation remains a central one that cannot be avoided by, by, by policymakers. Um, and, and, you know, and, and so those are old problems. Those are not new problems when it comes to thinking about industrial policy, structural transformation. There's a question, and I think Akevi raised that quite rightly, about whether the changes that we've seen in the global economy have somehow made industrial policy less significant uh, in the current era than it was the, in the kind of classical era of development thinking in the 1960s and the 1970s. And that's the rise, I think, as Laura mentioned, of a world in which global value chains have become a prominent way of organizing international trade, where new technologies, digital technologies, artificial intelligence are having a particularly prof profound impact on the trajectory of economies, where China has become the factory of the world and where the size of the Chinese economy has profound impacts uh, beyond the Chinese borders. And also the, where a lot of um, uh, activities seem to have become concentrated in the service economy and, and, and the tertiary sector, which has given rise to an interesting side debate that you may all have already picked up on in the work of people like Danny Roderick and Joe Stiglitz, both of whom were very prominent in promoting uh, industrial policy when it was out of fashion in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, as the World Bank preached a very simplistic form of development thinking around the Washington consensus and, and the notions around comparative advantage. Um, and, and, but have moved, in, uh, particularly in the last few years, to an argument that industrial policy has become less important for developing countries because economic structure and dynamism has shifted away from manufacturing towards service sector activities. And it's an important debate, I think, that you should all look into I disagree profoundly with um, with Roderick and Stiglitz on that uh, issue. I don't. I, I don't think the uh, that some of the changes that they discuss are sufficient to underplay the importance of uh, manufacturing activity and a more classical form of industrial policy. I think that that remains key. And and maybe I can just quickly say why I think that's the case. Um, as, as Akebi said, a lot of countries have lost manufacturing activity at a level of income that they should be adding uh, manufacturing activity. What, what 
what has become associated with Danny Roderick's term, premature deindustrialization, a term, I have to say, that UNCTAD coined 10 years before Danny, Danny Roderick became attached to the term, which kind of is slightly a myth for us, but, but that's okay. We provide a public good and, 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 and we have to accept the consequences of that. But premature industrial deindustrialization is undoubtedly a problem in all parts of the developing world outside of East Asia. And that needs to be framed into any sort of, dis I don't think the solution to that problem is let's try and uh, improve our service sector. I think the solution to that problem is how do developing countries that have lost industrial capacity when they should have been gaining it, um, get back into the industrialization game. Um, as, as you can see from this, I mean, I think the question of an informal, uh, an informal workforce is a particularly profound one for much of the developing world. Indeed, it distinguishes the challenges that developing countries face from those challenges that you find in, in advanced economies. And that's an important debate because a lot of, a lot of um, conventional economic thinking don't, don't buy into the story that developing countries are structurally different from uh, developed economies. I, we think that's a, 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 a deep mis, deeply misleading characterization of the development challenge, but you hear that a lot if you, if you listen to economists from the World Bank or the IMF, this idea that the problem is not in the structure of the economy, but it's in the policy, the mistaken policy options that countries have, have faced. Uh, that's true. That's also, it's not just in the informality of their economy. It's in the way in which uh, those economies are much less dependent on, uh, uh, sorry, much less, are much weaker users of fossil fuels as the driver of, of economic uh, development. We will come back to that in, at the end of my presentation. There's a clear, there's a clear energy divide in the, in the contemporary global economy between much of the developing world, China is an exception, and the advanced economies in terms of the extent to which they generate uh, energy from, from fossil fuels. Um, a, 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 a third problem that I think is linked to the industrialization challenge that Laura mentioned at the beginning, and that it seems that you discussed last week in, in, in uh, a previous lecture about just how indebted the developing world, the world in general, but the developing world in particular has become over the last 40 years of neoliberal dominance and the consequences that has for framing the policy challenge is a very profound one. I'll, I'll try and say something about that at the end of my remarks. And, and, and finally, just a, a point that I don't think has received enough attention in a lot of the discussions around structural transformation, which is just the how, despite the fact that the, the advocates of a kind of neoliberal development policy agenda have sold that agenda as being good for business and therefore good for investment, uh, if you look at investment patterns over the course of the last 40 years, they haven't actually been particularly uh, 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 positive. Certainly, that's certainly true of the advanced economies, but it's actually true of much of the developing world that is not that needs to that needs to be uh, uh, experiencing investment rates around 25, 30 percent. But outside of China, has has for the last 40 years struggled to get that rate. Be of, uh, above twenty percent of of their of their GDP, and that that pressure on investment 
uh, I think is something that we need to talk about much more um, openly uh, in, in terms of uh, alternative development strategies than, than we've done before. Um, so, so, so there is there are some long-standing challenges. I think, as Laura mentioned, that remain uh, pertinent to thinking about the development uh, policy challenges in the 21st century, despite all the changes that people talk about when it comes to this uh, uh, hyper-globalized, technologically fluid uh, world. And that's why, at least for us, industrial policy remains an important part of the toolkit that we think should be. Uh, developing country policymakers need to uh, advance. And when it comes to thinking about industrial policy and what, what the challenges are that face developing country policymakers, I think one that always comes up and is a, an important one, particularly important one, is the fact that unlike a lot of other um, broader uh, policy instruments, targeting is an unavoidable part of the industrial policy challenge. Um, it's, it's a more selective type of policy regime than is true of other more macroeconomic policy initiatives, for example. Uh, and to get a handle on that, on that challenge, we do distinguish in the work that we've done between what we call passive and active industrial policy. And passive uh, industrial policy essentially are, are policies that accept the existing endowments and structure that uh, characterize economy and focus essentially on reducing the cost of doing business and improving efficiency. They, they, they focus very much on, on price-based instruments. And, and within that framework over the course of the last two or three decades, a very strong focus on attracting foreign direct investment on kind of nudging comparative advantage um, rather than making uh, bolder, bolder types of structural transformation, very much have framed the policy agenda. And it's quite consistent with more neoliberal policy uh, frameworks. In, and I think, as Kevin mentioned, you know, industrial policy has never really gone away over the course of the, of the, of, of the history of the 20th, 21st centuries. Um, but it has taken different forms uh, under different types of policy regimes. And that includes neo neoliberal policies that, that use a particular form of, of industrial policy as part of their attempt to advance um, a market-based agenda. Uh, in that sense, we think the and, and kind of more active notion of industrial policy, which seeks not only to change corporate structure and investment behavior, but also seeks to transform the underlying economic structure is, is a critical part of any sort of successful uh, development strategy. I think along the lines that, that Arkebi described in his, in his uh, presentation. And that, it, it adds a very different sort of inflection to policy making and the policy challenge. A, a more demanding one, it has to be said, than passive industrial policy. It's about what Alice Hamilton called getting prices wrong, uh, in a famous phrase that she used. But, you know, it also involves issues of, of soft planning, of public ownership, of things that have dropped off the, in, uh, the policy agenda in, in recent years, but I think need to be brought back if we're going to have a serious um, uh, shot at making the kind of transformative changes that developing countries need um, to, to, meet their, to meet their multiple goals. 
one particular issue within this uh, framing of industrial policy is this kind of a more active targeting agenda and a very difficult one for, for many policymakers to come to terms with is that almost by implication, uh, active industrial policy creates rents and rent creating is therefore a very important part of the industrial policy agenda, but it's one that can also go very badly wrong. And a lot of developing countries have suffered from policy initiatives that have clearly created rents for select parts of the, uh, uh, of, of the industrial or economic elite, but have not really uh, driven a process of strong structural transformation. So how you manage rents is a very important part of an agenda that is focusing in a much more active way on the use of industrial policy. So that passive active dis distinction is I think a very important one. Um, the other important one, that the distinction that we've used in terms of describing industrial policy is also a difference between a kind of isolated approach, which just looks at industrial policy in the context of specific sectors or specific, or specific firms, and a more holistic approach to industrial policy, which recognizes that you have to embed industrial policy in a much more integrated approach, which links it to macroeconomic policies, to financial policies, to trade policies, and therefore requires a lot of coordination across policies uh, and across uh, in, uh, institutions responsible for policy making, which I think brings you to the center of the kind of discussions and the controversy around industrial policy, which of course is the role of the state in the development process. And that's, I'm sure you, from the readings and the work that you've already been doing, you know full well that that is a very contentious issue uh, with not only uh, economic consequences, but profound political disagreements also involved in that discussion. We in UNCTAD believe that the developmental state is a key component of, of any successful strategy and that the developmental state must be a transformative state and it, it must have certain qualities if it is gonna use industrial policy as part of a wider, more holistic transformative strategy. And I've listed some of the qualities that I think are necessary to describe an effective developmental state here, experimental, engaging, enforcing it and the enforcement role of developmental states are critical and and unfortunately uh, not sufficiently discussed in a lot of the literature alice amsden was someone who did discuss that uh, i think in a in a insightful way because if you're gonna if you believe that you know creating and managing rents effectively is a necessary part of the industrial policy agenda then you have to recognize that you if you're going to provide rents as a encouragement to firms to improve their performance, move into new activities, you have to be willing and able to discipline uh, the, the, those firms and, and businesses if they don't deliver on what you are expecting as a policymaker from the largesse that you are extending to them. And so that role, being able to discipline capital is a critical part of the industrial policy agenda. And that is a big problem for many developing countries in the current way in which the global economy is organized. And I think Lara was hinting at that in what she said in her introductory remarks. 
because when we look at the kind of direction that 21st century capitalism has moved in, in terms of international trade, where, where trade agreements have, um, have, have squeezed the room for many policymakers to operate, where the power of corporations that have become much more uh, 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 concentrated over the course of the last uh, two decades or more makes it difficult for firms to, uh, to push large corporations in terms of technological demands uh, and, 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 and other aspects of the upgrading process. And in terms of building this, the fiscal space, the resources that governments need to be able to, um, to contribute to a, a sustained uh, process of structural transformation. So, so the, you know, the way in which international trade has been organized over the last two decades is making the role of the developmental state much more difficult. And that problem is compound, compounded by the fact that we're not only uh, operating in a more open uh, and highly concentrated global economy, we're also operating a, in a very heavily financialized world, which at least from the work that we do in Nungtad, is a world that we think is hostile to the kind of active in, industrial policy that is needed to affect structural transformation. Um, and, and the Bretton Woods institutions have, have contributed to that. But this is not just about the Bretton Woods institutions. This is very much about the way in which uh, 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 governments have allowed an excessive amount of deregulation of financial markets over the last uh, three decades. Uh, and the way in which in that world of deregulated financial markets, policymaking is, dri is, is driven into a much more austerity kind of dependent mode, which produces a short-termist and rather unstable uh, uh, approach to uh, policymaking, which is clearly inconsistent with the kind of industrial policy that, that we've been looking at. And I think that Arkebi was, was talking about, which kind of leads us to a couple of big issues that I'm gonna just leave and throw out for you because I think they're on everybody's mind right now. One is the, rediscovery of industrial policy by the Biden administration. And, and it's an important shift in American policy thinking. I think at least it's one that we welcome in UNCAD, but we are nervous about the way in which that embrace of industrial policy is, is, um, is, is, has taken place. I think, and, and I think the Biden administration should be commended for it, it, it has contributed to a U.S. economy that is clearly outperforming the rest of the developed world at the moment. Arkevi noted the headline uh, that Africa is the is the real problem in the global economy right now. For us, the real problem in the global economy is not Africa. The real problem is the European economy, which is doing extremely badly and 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 has a very dogmatic view of the kind of policy challenge. Uh, that it is facing. In that sense, the U.S. the U.S. is a much more it's a much more flexible, a much more pragmatic agenda. It's a much more holistic approach to the problem. Industrial policy is used in part as a recognition to deal with the inequalities that have emerged under neoliberalism. The Biden administration is very explicit about that, about the resilience challenge uh, that that Arkebi mentioned with the breakdown of of, of value chains and with the fact that they now think that they need to catch up with China in certain areas of, um, of, of technological uh, 
uh, development. So they have things that we like in that in that agenda, holistic approach, um, uh, and, a, and, a, and a strong commitment to industrial policy as part of an integrated strategy. I do think when you look at the Biden approach, I would see it erring more in the direction of passivity than, acti than, than an active policy. Um, it's very dependent on tax breaks in terms of the resources that it gives out, but I don't think they're willing to uh, attach to those tax breaks a, a, a desire to discipline uh, business if it is not delivering on the kind of expectations that the administration want. That's a big question about whether the U.S. has itself the kind of developmental state that is consistent with effective industrial policy and, and particularly worrisome for us is the way in which they're uh, developing this policy approach in a very unilateral way, which is further undermining a multilateral system that is clearly not be in a position to deal with the multiple challenges that uh, policymakers, particularly in the developing world, uh, uh, are facing. And there's a whole debate going on, I'm sure you all know about, in the context of the WTO and the reform of the WTO that the, the, the US administrations, beginning with Obama, have essentially defanged by, by not allowing uh, the dispute settlement dispute settlement mechanism in the WTO to be operative. So, so there's a big debate going on in my, in my town, I'm in Geneva, about what, w, what the WTO is all about, what kind of reforms are needed, if it's going to be an effective institution to deal with the problems, particularly that developing countries are facing. Um, I'm gonna leave it there, Lara. I, I have a lot to say about what Akemi has already talked about, which is the role of industrial policy in the in the climate development challenge, uh, I, we don't think you can do, you, we, you can't meet those compounding challenges without effective and active industrial policies. But as we insist in the work that we've been doing, that is not a standalone policy approach. It requires a lot of um, support from the macro side of the economy, as well as from the uh, uh, employment side of the economy. And it's not just about state policies, it's all also about the kind of financial system that is consistent with mobilizing resources and directing those resources to meet the energy problem, to meet the problems of climate adaptation, et cetera. Uh, I think I'm gonna leave it there because that may be an issue that, that people wanna pick up on in the Q&A. Okay, Hello. thank you. Thank you very much for Richard. Can you please stop sharing your slides for us? Thank you. So we have um, two questions already from uh, the students online. Um, I'm not sure. This, Laura, do you hear with this mic? Yes, I can hear you, James. So if there are also questions in the room, I don't even have to say that I'm going to favor women because so far all of the questions are from, from women. So maybe I need to push the men to, to ask questions. Um, can we start, we'll take the two questions online first, and then we'll take uh, one more from the audience this round, and then the next round. We usually take three at once. I hope, hope that's okay. So, uh, Maria, can I please ask you uh, to turn on your video and answer, ask your question? And if you could very briefly introduce yourself as well. Hello, um, Francisco, Maria Francisca Estuardo. I'm a student of the uh, Master's in Public Policy. And I've been uh, recently doing research on raw minerals in, in Africa. So I wondered, 
how um, the transitional minerals could be a part of this transformation and in which ways or or what do you think are the changes that the, the countries should do in the matrix or industrialize um, the mining sector in this case, but in a different ways, not only relying on extractives. Okay, thank you very much. I have another question and the student prefers for me to read it out. Uh, so this is from Anne-Marie and she asks, do you think that resource nationalism through local content policies in developing countries, especially of extractive resources is a viable strategy in their structural transformation? Um, and then I think we have a question from the floor. Yes. Stand up. Do you hear me? Oh. <laughs> so I was wondering, how do you think that Latin American countries could play a more strategic role in the green transition, considering that countries such as Chile have vital resources, uh, but lack the uh, investment and infrastructure that, for example, other countries have like the US? And how do you think that uh, industrial policy could be financed without increasing debt fragility and uh, the dependence on financial markets? Okay, those go together quite well. So we'll start with those three. Um, Akabi, would you like to go first? But you are on mute. <laughs> yeah, Africa is uh, one of the regions with uh, uh, rare earth minerals, uh, which has now become quite critical with the expansion and constraints in, in chips manufacturing. Uh, so the first point uh, I want to highlight from an African perspective is Africa never had a problem of resources at all. It has the world's 60% arable land, but many African countries have not been food sufficient. Uh, and we also know there is huge resource that are relevant for these critical technologies. So the first point is from the conception, one wrong element will be starting from, from talking about resources. Uh, because if the policy is not there, for instance, from the very beginning to ensure that, let's say, extractive industries can be properly managed as a public resource as a nation's resource. And if the legislative process is not right, then definitely uh, the new uh, high agenda on rare minerals is only going to feed corruption and is not going to, to, be, to be helpful. The second aspect is uh, with this new discussions on rare minerals, by the way, the geopolitical tension, the geopolitical risks are also there quite significantly. We see, for instance, European countries, US, putting pressure on some African countries where these resources are abundantly available, saying that these are not resources are not fairly uh, distributed uh, to be used. Uh, so a big risk is this could lead into a geopolitical tension uh, and that will further uh, destabilize some of these uh, African countries. Countries like DRC, 
are quite quite in a very uh, difficult uh, position in terms of stability. The other element is, uh, if we look, for instance, as example, the green hydrogen, the potential for green hydrogen is being discussed in, let's say, linked with European Union in Egypt, in La Morocco, in South Africa, in Mauritania, Namibia, etc. But from my perspective, what I see big potential is where already the government has a very clear policy, green uh, industrial policy, to promote some industries can be uh, can really uh, pick these industries. They say Morocco uh, has is one of the largest uh, fertilizer producers. OCP. OCP is now working on uh, moving to green ammonia, which is which is quite quite important. Which means they are building on the industrial capacity. But in the absence of that, even if there is millions of tons of cobalt lithium in DRC, if the industrial ecosystem is not there, if the industrial policy is not there, uh, it's unlikely this could be used uh, uh, potentially to drive economies. So I see a big, a big uh, risk, and and uh, and uh, when the discussion is focus on resources, while we know that those countries that have really prospered is not because of resources, but because of policies and those who invested in uh, people, then uh, we have to be, uh, to look at the agenda as it's, we are repeating the old discussion that Africa is always rich, has minerals, et cetera, but we never talk about policy, we never talk about a productive and developmental state. So I think we need to, to bear this in mind. Extractive industry can push structural transformation. Uh, there, are, there are many good examples. Norway is one of the biggest, uh, uh, let's say, producers of uh, fossil oil. Uh, and they have been using it to develop uh, long-standing industries. Uh, and they have used this also as a resource for uh, sovereign, uh, uh, as part of sovereign wealth. Uh, so the key issue is the policy to develop extractive industry in a way that promotes structural transformation, but also ensures equitable uh, growth is, is, is a critical uh, element. In cases like Nigeria, we know that being one of the oil producing countries, crude oil has been exported until now, and refined oil has been imported. So uh, the and this has many of these oil producing countries or fossil uh, oil dependent country economies have been quite slow in diversifying their economies uh, because the pressure, the push uh, is always uh, weak to move into a more dynamic industries. Okay, Richard, would you? Sure. Um... Look, I mean, there's a real concern in Africa right now about a kind of green colonialism resurfacing, where Africa provides the resources, the critical minerals, and and even to some extent the the energy and so you know so exporting solar, but imports all the high cost 
manufactured consumer and capital goods. And, you know, in a funny way, back to where they were when UNCTAD was established in the back in the 1960s. And that's a real it's a it's a real concern. I think that it's one concern that, that many African policymakers have. Um, you know, and 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 there's a pushback against that pushback. I, I'm not I mean, African, at least in the WTO, uh, African uh, representatives are now much more conscious of the importance of industrial policy as a way of uh, avoiding that kind of trap. And so they're pushing for changes in the uh, trade legislation of the WTO to allow them greater policy space to do what they have to do, which is, as Akebi said, to take the resources that they have and find ways of adding value to those resources uh, that allow them to upgrade and, and, and diversify their economies. And, 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 and it's doable. We, the, the country that actually has, done, has gone furthest in that direction is Indonesia. Indonesia is a, a, a major nickel exporter and, and for a very long time was simply an exporter of raw nickel. Nickel is very important, increasingly important in the context of the, of the, of the new um, green industries uh, in electrical vehicles and other uh, uh, areas. So essentially, essentially, Indonesia banned the export of raw nickel. Um, and at the same time, found, tried to bring in, and has done so to some extent successfully, uh, to develop the industries that can process that. So you're not just exporting a low value uh, raw material, but that you're engaged in the processing business. It's, and that's a longstanding problem, as I Katie pointed out, you know, countries like Nigeria have always been energy rich but have have been uh, energy dependent when it comes to um uh, the refined product um and so they 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 found they tried to find ways to um use industrial policy to uh diversify their economy into processing and are now moving into the world of uh, uh, e e electric electric vehicle batteries uh, attracting foreign direct investment particularly from china china is now establishing EV battery plants in Indonesia. So you get something like a more complete value chain that is at least in important areas, adding value and creating jobs that are not of the, of the kind that had traditionally plagued uh, Indonesia. And that's the kind of strategy I think that needs to be repeated. Now, in Indonesia is lucky. That is because the WTO I mean, the Europeans have taken the Indonesians to the to WTO um, uh, 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 dispute through the dispute, and they can do it, but they can't impose any 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 uh, outcomes on them because the dispute settlement system has been neutered by the Americans because the Americans refused to appoint judges, appellate judges to the WTO body. So, you know, the Europeans can complain that they like, but they can't actually do anything about it. So, and, and, and so I think it's a moment when other developing countries need to use this strange geopolitical space to once again get back into the industrial policy business in the way I think the Indonesians have 
in 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 the context of of nickel uh, uh, exports, and and I think that's that's the kind of strategy that that is that is that is needed. Um, just on the Latin American question, I mean, you know, again, I mean, uh, you know, sadly, lots of Latin America have been experiencing premature deindustrialization now for two or three decades. So, so they're, they, they've in a certain sense been caught in the middle income trap and they, and they're going and they're now looking for, I mean, if you take the Lula government as being indicative, then, you know, they are very conscious of the need to reindustrialize and, and, and at the same time, they want to do that in a more responsible way than the advanced economies. So they're thinking about what green industrialization uh, uh, means uh, in in their context. I think I think and 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 you know and they're thinking hard about the kind of industrial. If you listen to them in the context of their role in the G20, they're very conscious of of this issue and they're thinking hard about what kind of industrial policies a middle income country like theirs needs to both you know reestablish a strong industrial base, but to do so without the kind of damaging consequences. Uh, uh, that the today's advanced economies have imposed on the world. I think, I think at least for us, there are a couple of things that need to be put on the table if that's going to happen. Um, not so much for Brazil, but for much of other parts of Latin America, they can't do this with the burden of debt that they face. Maybe this was an issue that came up last week in your discussions, Lara. That I mean, the burden of debt in many developing countries, including Latin American countries, is just too high for them to be able to make the investments in these areas that allow them to, to meet both development and climate challenges. So dealing with the debt problem is a multilateral problem. They can't, the solutions that the IMF has come up with essentially are imposing the burden on the countries themselves. And, 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 and it's a, you know, a creditor friendly response to that problem. We, we disapprove of that greatly and we need a multilateral response to the debt challenge. Uh, and I think that that's certainly true. Of, it's true of African countries, but it's also certainly true of Latin American countries. We want to see a bigger role for public banks. I mean, BNDES has a critical role, to, has had a critical role in Brazil's previous industrialization drives, neutered to some extent by Bolsonaro, um, but, but is now coming back as an important tool in the industrial policy agenda of Brazil. That's development banks are critical to effective industrial policy. And and we need and other countries, not only in Latin America, need to get back into the game of building their own development banks. That, that's critical, at least for us. So we would like to see that. I think the what the other issue again, which is as much international as domestic, is is the question of technology transfer. I mean, green industrialization requires technologies, many of which are in 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 many of which the advanced economies have a very dominant role. Uh, and protect that dominant role through intellectual property rights, which are protected through trade agreements of both a multilateral and a bilateral and regional nature. And, and if the North is serious about supporting the transition, then it's going to have to find ways to ensure that developing countries access the appropriate technologies at as reasonable a cost as is possible, because clearly that is not the case at the moment. And that can, again, can only be solved, I think, through multilateral negotiations. It can't be solved uh, by 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 countries um, doing the right thing at the national level. 
Okay, thank you for those. Those are great answers. Um, I, I think we have a question in the room. James has a question and I have many questions, but I will sacrifice for students if there are more questions. Um, I can see there's a question at the back. No, we have. Oh, we have okay, questions at the front too. I think if the person at the back, I think you should come to the front. Well, we'll, we'll, we now have a microphone that rolls. Okay. So if you could also introduce yourself and then also keep your question brief so we can ask multiple questions. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's working. Uh, so thank you for your presentations. Uh, I had a question specifically for uh, Richard. Uh, you talked about the necessity of uh, raising productivity and how manufacturing could uh, achieve this uh, in order to uh, empower development. And you also talked about the challenge to, of job creation. And so I was wondering with the rise of uh, robotization and automatization of uh, the process of manufacturing, um, how can we ensure that uh, the growth that is created with manufacturing is not a jobless growth? It's a pretty broad question. I'm just wondering if you've given some thought to, to it. Thank you. Pretty good. Try to come into camera there. Hi, thank you both. Um, I had a question. I appreciated that you in included scholarly work and academic work that we could reference. Um, I didn't know if there was anything further also of institutions and organizations apart from UNCTAD that we could look at that would that publish interesting reports or that either of you find as interesting sources for industrial policy work that's contemporary. Good. One more from the room. Hi, yeah. Hi, uh, Nicholas, Development Studies. Um, a quick question coming back to this kind of Dawkins-Stieglitz argument that you made. Um, on the one hand, we have now kind of limiting uh, limited policy space due to multilateral trade agreements, VTO, etc. On the other hand, we have the problem that big countries like US, China are investing. Therefore, the big question is, can we consume all these goods that we put on the international markets? I see a lot of arguments for manufacturing and that kind of stuff, but have small countries and especially development countries still a shot in industrial policy or should they go to services? Okay. So should we go in reverse order this time? I'm gonna ask uh, Richard to go first. Um, let me try and take them in reverse. I mean, you know, I think, uh, the, the Stiglitz-Roderick debate needs to be addressed. I, it's an, you know, it is a significant um, set of challenges that they pose. I mean, I mean, the irony, to some extent for me, the irony of the debate is most developing countries are service economies. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the, if when you when you talk about informal economies, right? And and I, I went through my the figure from the ILO rather quickly, but, you know, for large parts of the developing world, including middle-income countries, upwards of 50% of their labor force is in the informal economy. And those are, they're in service activities to a very large extent. And clearly that, 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 that service is not, that model of a service-driven economy is not working. Um, I think, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is that there are certain services that are very high tech and very high paying 
right? Financial services being an obvious one, but but a lot of other business services. I think what I don't get from the Roderick Stiglitz approach is that many of those services, when you look at successful economies that, that have strong, sophisticated service sectors, those sectors have grown out of the manufacturing. They, they haven't kind of magically appeared from nowhere. They've grown out of a, of a, of a strong manufacturing experience. And it's not, it's not clear to me in the argument that they, these people make how somehow, you know, poor African economies are somehow are going to leapfrog into highly sophisticated uh, financial services, which it should be said are not actually very job intensive either. That is, they're not going to absorb large parts of the 50% of plus of the, of the working population that is actually working in, in bad informal jobs. So, so I, I mean, I think there's a lot, I, I, I'm not persuaded by their argument um, and and but but it's a it's an it's an ongoing discussion that I think needs to be needs to be taken seriously uh, clearly as a as as, as part of the uh, development um, policy challenge. Um, boy, uh, you know who I mean. It, I think I think on who else we look at, who, which other people we read. I mean, maybe Akebi has a better I, idea than than I do. Um, you know, it's funny that. In the last four or five years, you know, you've seen work coming out of the Washington-based institutions. You know, there's a famous paper by a couple of IMF researchers called the the policy that shall not be named, using the Oscar Wilde kind of analogy. Um, and and well, there were, I've I've seen good papers from the World Bank too on on industrial policy challenges. I mean, for us, the problem there is not just the research, it's that those kind of papers don't have any impact on World Bank policy when it actually comes to advising governments in the field. But but that's that, that's another story. I, I mean, I think there is some interesting work coming out of some of those institutions. UNIDO, we still use, um, but it's more, I think it's, it's more come from, I think it's more come from scholars, really, um, than, 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 the international the, the and, and and development banks i think we're seeing more and more good work coming out of development banks you i mean bandes used to do excellent work i think it will get back into that game now uh, after the bolsonaro episode um we see we see interesting work coming out from the asian development bank for example on industrial policy i mean there are i think i think at least from our point of view i think you know that Reconnecting financial institutions to the industrial policy challenge is a is critical to future success, and I think it's beginning to happen. And so, so we take some encouragement uh, from that. Um, on the on the I mean on the question of jobless growth and and the problem of of new technologies, I, I think there's always that we you know we did some work. 2018 on the on the spread of robotic technology in developing countries and because it was a before covid there was a growing concern in both advanced and developing countries that that you know robotic technology was going to be a, a job destroyer it didn't didn't happen really now we we're hearing the same about ai and maybe there's more 
there's more, I mean, the, the IMF came up with a study that anticipated that something like 40% of jobs would be dis destroyed in the advanced economies by artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, job creation ultimately is a macroeconomic challenge as well. And if you, if you have a vibrant expansionary macroeconomic regime, jobs will be created. If you operate in an austerity driven debt dependent macroeconomic regime, it will not be, uh, it will be an environment uh, hostile to job creation. So I think the question, in response to the question, uh, I think it's, a, it's as much about getting your macroeconomic policy right as it is about getting your industrial policy right. And sadly, the IMF and the World Bank still don't get macroeconomic policy right. And I think that's more of a challenge uh, for developing country policymakers right now than, than technology or, 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 or industrial policy. Thank you, Richard. Akavi, would you like to? Uh, yeah. On the, on the list of uh, publications, I think we have to relate with the, uh, with the team and subject we want to study. For instance, on green energy, we increasingly see IEA and IRENA producing uh, important publications. On Africa, uh, UNECA has been producing uh, very good publications. Uh, we also see any wider also publishing on uh, development economics. Uh, but the key point is the perspectives that permit these publications uh, is a key factor in terms of uh, in, in terms of quality. For instance, from the perspective of alternative providing alternative views, most of the contribution has been from, from scholars rather than institutions. And I would consider uh, uh, UNCTAD as outlier as it has been pro, uh, <clears throat> uh, offering uh, alternative views in on many issues. So uh, I think uh, Laura and James could, could provide you uh, guidance on this subject. Uh, increasingly now the open access uh, it's becoming quite useful instrument, and and it's always good to to look at uh, some of the publishers' uh, websites to see the open access materials they have, and uh, the publications which we have been involved with. Uh, I'll be sharing with uh, Laura, and and she may be able to to make it available to you. Uh, having said this, I want to uh, focus on on the, on the key point linked with robotization. Robotization has been very, very popular, not now. Six, seven years ago, it was just a number one agenda like AI is now currently has dominated. Uh, and, and the scale and, and uh, expectation impact of uh, robotization was quite, uh, quite dramatic. Uh, I was in, uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, China, two weeks, uh, I mean, two months back, and I had to order my breakfast in my room, room service. And the one who brought me breakfast was not a waiter or waitress. It was uh, uh, a robot that brought to, uh, to my room. 
And this is China, 1.4 billion population, and the biggest expansion of robots, mechanization, automation is in China, more than any of the advanced economies. So the key issue is this, uh, uh, some of these technologies will obviously uh, replace jobs, but they also can generate economic activities that will allow uh, new jobs and new employment in new industries and also upgrading of industries. So to my understanding, uh, looking especially the example in, in China where massive expansion of uh, robotization is happening without any restriction, it's just being encouraged as a government of policy. Probably it's part of the solution also to uh, issue of this uh, aging of the society as well. China has started to, uh, for the first time, population has freezed uh, in 2023 and it's going to decline. Uh, and a smaller part of the population is going to support a bigger part of the population. So we shouldn't, uh, uh, I don't think it's a big threat and the uh, approach should be especially uh, developing countries to seriously take these technologies, understand them, not in generic terms, but sector by sector, by economic activity, to see how to capitalize and augment their capacity, and also in a way uh, to reduce where there is some vulnerability. That will be the best approach because every technology in the last three, four centuries during the uh, capitalist development has, has always been the same. Uh, so I think we shouldn't be alarmed. And, and the key element here is education and technology can play an important uh, role because from the early stage in primary schools, uh, students should be trained in a way that they can be, uh, they will be able to take jobs uh, flexibly uh, and also when some jobs are uh, decreasing in terms of uh, uh, scope and, and also new jobs are created, they can easily adjust. So it has implication on technology and, and, uh, and education. On the issue of services, I, I would prefer to present a good example, uh, which I believe is relevant to understand uh, this aspect. Uh, again, two, three decades, uh, a major discussion has been service sector is growing and actually a new terminology was created, service, service, servicification, uh, saying that now the services sector has uh, dominated. Uh, and let's look at Singapore. Singapore uh, has developed uh, the most dynamic services sector, especially financial, uh, international financial sector in Singapore is among the best and, and the biggest uh, sector. And services is so important. Singapore, up to now, they follow a policy to maintain the share of manufacturing up to 25% annually. And when you ask them why they do that, the reason they say is, the growth of the services sector is being driven and is linked with manufacturing. That's what they say. Logistics is a major part. And logistics is linked with manufacturing, with, with uh, merchandise goods. 
Uh, and uh, so a key issue is uh, manufacturing continues to be so, so important, even in the most advanced economy like the US. US has, in US, manufacturing had a major share uh, in GDP in the 50s, 30, 32%. And late in mid 70s, it went down to 20%. And uh, by uh, after 2000, it came to 12, 13%. Now it's about 10%. And then one of the major uh, aim of this IRA is, is not just to uh, greening, but also to develop industrial capacity, to develop manufacturing capability, because innovation cannot be sustained without the development and the link with manufacturing capability. So it's an important component. Then when we talk about manufacturing, one key issue we need to consider is its impact as a mul its multiplier effect in the overall economy. In terms of job, even like in Ethiopia, we have seen a single manufacturing job creating many indirect jobs. Uh, uh, on average, it's said that uh, on average, again, I'm qualifying that every single manufacturing job can create 2.2 uh, indirect jobs. And Elon Musk was, was referring to his uh, uh, new plant in, in Texas, and he was saying the factory employs 10,000, but the indirect employees are about 50,000. Uh, so when we talk about manufacturing, it's about exports, it's about technology and innovation, it's about job creation, it's about productivity overall, the special qualities, uh, properties which, uh, which Richard uh, highlighted. And when we look at services, one of the reasons it's expanding is that uh, first it's becoming increasingly tradable, uh, 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 tradable service. So which means uh, bigger uh, market scope. But we also need to remember many of the uh, activities which are now considered within services sector were originally part of the manufacturing uh, uh, sector, like R&D, uh, including after sales or logistics distribution, warehousing. All these were part of manufacturing in the old classification. So having said this, the right approach should be uh, for, for governments because employment creation has to be central in uh, all industrial policies, especially developing countries, developing world like African countries, because they have to create jobs. It's so important. Uh, first is, uh, the first point is, there must be a policy that encourages, that provides support for all job creating activities without exception, without any exception, any sector. This is not going to be high resource, intense, uh, resource intensive, but there must be an, an environment that encourages jobs and also that clears obstacles. This is, this is not industrial policy, it's just to ensure jobs are increasingly created. Even uh, vendors, uh, street vendors is an activity that's important in terms of supporting families. Second, government should have a policy where they put a concerted effort, where they identify strategic sectors, priority sectors, which 
uh, uh, earlier Richard mentioned targeting, they must have few targets where they put their resource, where they put all their policy instrument, where they put a lot of effort in learning that will drive the economy. These are important drivers for productive jobs, for innovation, for developing the productive uh, capacity. When we also look at services, we shouldn't uh, generalize in general terms. In almost all African countries, service sector is over 50%. Even uh, where manufacturing is below 10%. The critical issue is not that classification services should be unbundled. What are we talking about when we talk about services? Is it informal sector? The key here is, I can just give you some policies where this can have an impact. Ethiopia's aviation industry is, uh, uh, is driven by Ethiopian Airlines, and it generates over 5 billion US dollars from export of services from aviation. Tourism in many places like Mauritius or Egypt is a critical industry as it has significant impact also on job creation. So we have to unbundle the services sector and services sector are important where there is a possibility to generate foreign exchange or opportunity for exports where it has an impact on job creation, decent jobs, and also where there is opportunity for linkages. Uh, yeah, so we need to, I think, uh, uh, look from this perspective. Same thing with agriculture. Agriculture, to my understanding, is a critical, a critical element of the industrial policy. In Ethiopia's case, horticulture sector or floriculture sector and export sector was part of the industrial policy. And, uh, and uh, with new knowledge, with new mechanization, uh, uh, also the technology linked with freshness, which uh, Chris Kramer and John Sander have, have done some significant work. When we interpret industrial policy, we need to look at high productivity activity in manufacturing, in services, as well as in, uh, is in agriculture. But it doesn't mean that uh, manufacturing is the least priority. Actually, if I put this, I would bring manufacturing because it has significant impact also in driving productivity across the various sectors. Akabi, I just want to go back to the room just to make sure if there are any more questions. Um, are there any more questions from the room? No? Okay. Um, I mean, next week in DP400, we're, yes, we're talking we about... Questions. Yes. Oh, okay. So maybe we'll take a couple more questions. We haven't got much time left. So if students could keep the questions quite uh, concise, and perhaps Richard and Arkaby to also be concise. <laughs> okay, so is that Nato? No. Okay. Uh, unmute the thing. There's a little button there on the mic. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Hi it's Francesca. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. My question is related to the um, job creation and uh, economic transformation of the states. How do you think that this um, industrialization then can lead and can have tensions with then uh, the localization of people and um, the capacity of the urban settlements and 
um, and cities? And how do you think that um, um, this can be provided by the state that is that doesn't have the capacity yet because it's building the capacity and by companies maybe? Just this. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Enzo, behind you. <laughs> you got it. You, Ms. Enzo, Human Studies, and I wanted to ask if there has been a shift with regard to in part substitution industrialization. This is now a thing of the past. I don't know why it's not working. If this is now a thing of the past, or if now all of the policies, industrial policies, are more focused on exports. So how has this changed? Are we still seeing some policies similar to those in the 60s and 70s and 80s, or is this truly a new paradigm? Thank you. Thanks. Okay, uh, right down here in front, our guest from China, Hong Yu, has the question. Yeah, I wonder um, if the speakers can com comment more on the global economic governance, because WTO has been brought up several times in your talk. And uh, in my impression, the WTO has been promoting kind of cookie-cutter cookie approach to free trade and free market. But now, somehow, there seems to be more space or less space to allow developing countries to um, thinking about uh, better ways to creating domestic industrial capacities. So I wonder, like, how do you map out the global economic governance and where are, oh, who are the drivers of the debate and what are the key uh, agents and institutions? Thank you. Okay, I am I'm being a bit naughty. There is one student who's online, Nadine. And if Nadine could just uh ask her question very, very quickly, I'll I'll allow you. <laughs> oh, are you there? Hello. Hi, Nadine. Can you hear me? Yes, please please ask your question. All right. So um my question is about agriculture agroecological practices, do you think it is feasible for African economies to specialize uh, in agroecological practices given their sustainability and their ability to enhance livelihoods? Um, is this something that's scalable for industrial purposes? Okay, thank you very, very much, Nadine. La La okay. Laura, this, this point is not clear. So I think the, the question was, um, you know, about agroecological, so more environmentally friendly agricultural practices. Okay. Is this a kind of realistic part of a kind of, I guess, industrialization of freshness? Or, you know, how, how do we integrate that into industrial policy? So do you want to start us off, Akabi, this time? Yeah, I will I will uh, pick two, two questions and uh, Richard can... Uh, answer the two other questions. Uh, first one on, on agriculture. Uh, yeah, I think agriculture has a big potential because agriculture is not just one sector. It has also various industries within that uh, broad uh, uh, sector. Uh, so the key uh, with the, uh, the challenge with many developing countries, especially in, in Africa has been, uh, there has not been a consistent a policy that puts agriculture as part of the broader transformation, or in a way, uh, putting transformation of agriculture as a key priority. And what are the, uh, I mean, the if we look at the environmentally friendly agriculture, 
The first thing is, it's Africa's agriculture that is the most vulnerable uh, from the continent's resource and even from, from global perspective. Uh, so with the current uh, uh, technology, with the current practice of agriculture, we are not going to sustain it. So there is a need when we talk about environmental uh, sustainability, we mean about soil conservation, about water conservation and water saving. We mean about uh, using modern technology, using uh, organic uh, uh, models, uh, and also intensive, uh, intensive farming is a key uh, uh, modality. One of the new technologies in agriculture that is evolving is this what's called regenerative uh, and, and vertical farming in many places. So we are moving that, we have to move in that direction and then we have to do that uh, in view of the worsening uh, climate change as well. On the ISI, uh, the imports of industrialization and export uh, led industrialization, uh, from my perspective, uh, it's, it's a dichotomy. Uh, there are some sectors where which are more uh, that could be considered tradable, uh, which could be exported across borders. And there are also some, let's say, uh, goods that are not tradable, but that are important for a domestic market, like cement is a non-tradable good. But the key point uh, in terms of policies, some governments, for instance, try to address the issue of foreign exchange shortage by trying to prioritize and, and, and manage the existing resource and also focusing on import substitution. But the big dilemma is import substitution cannot be sustained uh, if it's isolated from productivity and productivity is linked with, with scale. Increasing scale is the one that ensures that goods are being provided in a most competitive way and, and the cheapest way. So I don't think any country with the current economic structure can only follow uh, import substitution industrialization. That's why we need to emphasize uh, linking it with, with, with exports. And we have also to link it with the macroeconomy issue, which uh, Richard tied. Uh, mm -hmm. Now many African countries are, uh, are victims of this debt stress. Uh, and the main problem with debt is not generating the money to pay. The most, the biggest bottleneck is the foreign exchange uh, uh, servicing uh, as it has to be repaid in, in foreign exchange, which means that every single country should be able to generate foreign exchange because that's what is going to also to limit the growth uh, potential. So okay. there is dichotomy. Okay, I want to go to Richard because we are kind of out of time, but thank you very much. So Richard, do you want to take the last couple of questions? Okay, very quickly, just on agriculture, the answer is don't leave it to Bill Gates and his way of thinking if you're worried about food insecurity. And so that's the place to start there. Um, look, on the global government, there's, a, there's just a uniform problem of the lack of representation of developing countries in the framing of the global governance challenge. That's particularly acute in the Washington-based institutions. Um, and, and that's not only in terms of 
of, uh, uh, of voting power and other things. It's also in, it, it's visible in the way in which the heads of those institutions have for the last 80 years been a, a divided up between advanced economies where the US takes the World Bank and the and the and the Europeans take the IMF and 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 so there's a real representational problem with the so-called rules-based economic order that we need to address urgently if we're going to rebalance multilateralism in a way to address these multiple problems you know i mean china china i think china's rise has forced that onto the agenda um although china itself is underrepresented in given the size of its economies massively underrepresented too uh, in those areas the wto is a little different i think developing countries not a bit, Strictly speaking, WTO is one country, one vote. So it's not like the IMF and the World Bank in that sense. But developing countries simply don't have the capacity, many of them, particularly smaller ones, to actually be able to manage the rule book of, of international trade, multilateral, re regional and bilateral. And they're overwhelmed, actually, in many respects. And we're going to need, we, we need a serious, I think, getting back to basics when it comes to trade, uh, the rules of the international trading system. So that's that's something that should be done. Okay, uh, with, okay with... Richard, I'm sorry, but I think we do have to, to stop. But thank you both so very much for coming and talking to us. Um, I, you know, you've given us such a good overview and also lots of specific cases for the students to look up. Um, so we're enormously thank you, thankful to you. Uh, I do want to share that next week we have um, our final cutting edge lecture, which is called What the Gene Editing Revolution Me Means for Rural Welfare, Global Futures and Social Justice, very much building on uh, the last points about the role of agriculture and transformation. And in future, we also have a series of, of of lectures by some alumni of the programs at the LSE and ID, um, which will start on Monday. And they're gonna be talking about their work, but also about their experiences, sort of getting jobs within the development sector after LSE. So just finally, I'd like everybody to just thank our wonderful speakers uh, for giving us such a wonderful lecture. Um, it's on mute, James, <laughs> nobody can hear it. But thank you both so very much. Um, and I hope to see you in London as you're both coming through very soon. So thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs>